This morning's scripture passage comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, leave, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Annalisa, for reading our text this morning. If, uh, if you want to, now is the time to start your survey. <laughs> for those of you who are going to hold off on that, then... Uh, no, it's my privilege to get to, uh, to preach this morning. My name is Darian. I'm a member here uh, at Trinity and, and, and glad to think for a few minutes uh, with you about this passage of Scripture. This week, as I was reflecting uh, on this passage, I actually came across an article from a New Testament scholar that I know of, um, a woman named Candida Moss. She's a New Testament scholar at Notre Dame. She wrote an article earlier this year for the Daily Beast describing the ancient origins of the eye-for-eye law, found both in the Old Testament and in the ancient Mesopotamian document called the Code of Hammurabi. The requirement of an eye-for-eye and a tooth-for-tooth, it's actually called colloquially the law of the tooth, Um, it's a law of retaliation or retribution. And in its various forms, this law stipulates that there must be a degree of reciprocity or fittingness between the crime and the punishment. In Moss's article, she strikingly goes on to observe that in early February this year, Iran's Supreme Court upheld a ruling of a lower court that judged a woman who had blinded another woman through throwing acid on her face was to be sentenced by uh, losing her own eyes. Uh, In the context of Sharia law, this is actually not very common, though the law requires eye for an eye, often in uh, countries where Sharia law is uh, uh, on the book. In, uh, th- th- though it's not very common for Sharia law to be instituted like that, often the, the one who has been convicted can pay money. It's called blood money. Um, in this case, it actually was going forward that this person was going to be punished by losing her eyesight because she had caused the loss of the eyesight of the victim. But this begs the question that's got me thinking about our passage. Is that justice? Does literally taking an eye for an eye, does that bring about justice for the victim? Perhaps here it's helpful to think about two types of justice. Punitive justice, a justice that brings judgment, and then restorative justice, making right through restoring what has been lost. Though an eye for an eye might deliver a degree of punitive justice, it can't restore what's been lost. This morning, as we continue to think about the series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching on how to flourish, we have already seen in this series how the Beatitudes uh, run counter to some of our expectations declaring that God's blessing rests on the mourners, the meek, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. 
The section in the sermon that we're in right now, traditionally called the Antitheses, these are a section where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is here sketching the identity and the character of those who are pursuing the good life, the life of flourishing. Here, the life of flourishing is one in which anger is overcome through reconciliation. Lust is abandoned for genuine love. Marriage is honored through lifelong fidelity. Language is simple and honest. And this morning, we discover that instead of demanding our own justice, instead of seeking an eye for an eye, we are to renounce retaliation. Uh, but, but this is ironic. This actually might strike us as an odd way to flourish. How can I flourish when I'm vulnerable? When I don't get what I need? Or when my rights aren't protected? How can I flourish when I don't get or demand justice? Jesus here challenges our notions of what justice, fairness, and what we consider ours by right. An eye for an eye culture, in an eye for an eye culture, Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek because this is the way to flourishing. The way to flourish is to give up on our right to get even. So here uh, on page five in the bulletin, there are uh, four points that I want to progress through and you can follow along there. Uh, first of all, I want to think about seeking justice where, where Jesus begins uh, with the law of retaliation itself. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says, You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This here is a law that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. And in the original Old Testament context, this was a good law. It was a law for the flourishing of society. The law of the eye for an eye was designated or designed to prevent two kinds of corruption. First, severe retribution that did not fit the crime. For example, when someone would take a life for stealing a piece of bread, the crime doesn't fit the punishment. So the law of eye for eye was to reduce or to avoid severe retribution. Secondly, the law was designed to avoid a kind of self-appointed vigilante justice. Just think the Godfather, right? Where a vendetta, a blood feud has been started and the killing won't stop until the bloodlust is satisfied. The law of eye and tooth is to hold back vigilante justice. So the purpose of the law in its original context in the Old Testament was that justice should never exceed it in its demands. There should be a correspondence between the crime and the punishment. This is the principle of proportionate justice. But the problem in Jesus' day is that even though the law was positive, the leaders during Jesus' day, the leaders of the Jews in that day, had ignored this context and were actually insisting on the eye for an eye uh, as a right, as a duty, um, one should always press one's rights so that I get what's coming to me. And eye for an eye, instead of reducing or constraining the extent of vengeance, it became what people were insisting for themselves. It was taking advantage of the law. And of course, we can point our finger to first century Palestine, but we can actually think about ourselves as well. Of course, we have learned 
this eye for an eye thing well for ourselves. Shock and awe bombings lead to shock and awe beheadings. A Pearl Harbor leads to Hiroshima. A murder leads to an execution. A rude look leads to a cold shoulder. An eye for an eye. We have indeed heard this before, but Jesus continues teaching and he declares another way, a better way. So point number two, in the context of this Old Testament teaching of eye for an eye, Jesus responds by unmasking the deceit of getting even. Here in the next verse, Matthew 5, verse 39, just the very first part, Jesus says, though you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. Here in the first part of verse 39, Jesus gives us his new interpretation, or better, his deeper interpretation, revealing what this law was all about from the beginning. And Jesus says here, do not even resist the evildoer. Famously, or perhaps infamously, Leo Tolstoy understood this command of Jesus to mean that it was wrong for Christians to ever become soldiers or to become policemen or judges because it was their job in society to resist evil, to stand against the evil one. But rather than a blanket statement forbidding that anyone should stand against evil or injustice, Jesus is challenging us rather not to resist evil in kind, or in other words, we should not resist evil with evil or resort to evil means to stand against evil deeds. This is really clear elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 12, 17, don't repay evil with evil. Again, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone. And finally, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter warns against paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, to give a blessing. Here Jesus speaks to the heart of the matter. Do not be a vengeful, vengeful vigilante, self-justified distributor of justice. Rather, there is a righteousness greater, more beautiful than self-justice. Jesus is saying, letting God be the judge and righteous maker, he is the one who's going to put things to right. He is the one who will bring about justice and judgment. Do you trust in his sovereignty? Now, I admit, it's hard to let go of the deceit of getting even. Um, if I can't defend my honor, if I can, can't uh, defend my integrity, if I can't justify myself, perhaps, before others, then what am I? A doormat? I think there are several reasons why it's really hard for us to, to give up at this moment, to give up on getting even. First of all, perhaps we, uh, we're no longer in control. Even, uh, even for Christians here, I think it's a deeply religious response to the law of retribution uh, that we would want to see others held to account, that we would want to sense a feeling of being in control uh, by seeking retribution. Perhaps we feel like as a victim we regain an element of control when we see the perpetrator punished, punished in kind. They get what's coming to them. We think that in order to flourish we must be in control, and to be in control means to 
fight back, defend myself, to insist upon my right. But of course, this is deception. When are we ever in control? When do we actually exert control over our circumstances like that? Though we think uh, that we can see the situation in clear, right, clear light, though we think we know what is right, only God can see from his perspective what real justice looks like. Only God is the one that's in control. So we, we, we hold on to getting even because we want to stay in control. Maybe another a reason we hold on to this sense of wanting to get even or wanting to defend ourselves is because we're skeptical that anyone else will defend us. In our culture, our culture is deeply shaped by the conviction that if I do not look out for myself, no one else will. I must take up my own defense because in the end, it all depends on me. No one else is looking after me. No one else at my job or at school or in my neighborhood. No one else is looking out for me, so I need to stick up for myself. Thus, flourishing depends on my ability to take care of myself. But you can see that this is an issue of trust, both trust toward others, trust toward community, trust toward society, justice in society, but ultimately trust toward God. Living as if it depends on me, living as if no one else is looking out for me and I have to take care of myself, is a kind of functional atheism. And I think even Christians, in fact, maybe especially Christians, would fall into this. Oh yes, I believe in God, I believe that he has good plans, and I believe that he is caring for me, but when it comes down to it, I have to provide for myself. I have to stick up for myself. I, I say I believe in God, but down deep, I don't think he's actually looking out for me. Do I have a sense that God loves and cares for me, that he is looking out for me, even in the midst of, of my difficulty and looking for justice? So we might hold on to our uh, desire to get even because we're skeptical. Anybody else is looking out for us. And finally, maybe if we're honest, a third reason, deep down, getting even just feels good. Settling a score, giving paybacks, exacting revenge, it feels good for a moment, and it's hard to give it up. I have been wronged, I want to see someone else wronged, and I'm going to feel better about that. But I, I know I don't have to tell you this, right? Uh, two, two things on that note, right? Number one, it never feels good. Uh, it feels good for one second, and then, number two, you need more. All right. To feel better about this, I need to exact revenge again and again, and on it goes. There is no restorative justice in vengeance. Even though it seems like it might feel good for a moment, it's like a drug. It wears off, and I need another hit. Getting even never brings about restoration and so here, Jesus is unmasking the deceit of getting even. It doesn't lead to flourishing. Demanding my rights, sticking up for myself, doesn't lead to flourishing. Instead, he continues, and this is point number three. Jesus gives four examples uh, as he unmasks the emptiness of getting even. Let me read this. This is in chapter 5, verse 39, the last part of that verse, all the way to 42, the end of our passage. Jesus says this, on the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. 
As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here, Jesus gives four representative applications of not getting even or turning away from retribution. Turning the other cheek, giving one shirt and coat, going the extra mile, and giving to the one who asks. These are four illustrations that would be familiar and mundane in the first century. These would make sense to the people who are listening to the teachings of Jesus. They're everyday occurrences that are helping Jesus communicate why forsaking retribution leads to real flourishing. First, the first one is very clear to us, uh, a slap on the cheek. Um, rather than like physical pain here, though slapping, being slapped on the cheek would hurt, this is really a public insult, a provocation. And you and I know both how most of us would respond in this case. In an argument or in some kind of confrontation, someone slaps you on the face and it's a provocation. What's the first thing you do? Stick out your chest, right? And say, come on. You want to, no, no. We want to respond in kind. You hit me, I'll hit you back. I don't want to be seen as weak. I don't want to lose face. I want to defend my reputation, defend my person. But the disciple here, Jesus is saying, must open himself up to more harm, to more indignity, to more vulnerability. Hitting back, as N.T. Wright so aptly says, hitting back keeps evil in circulation. It just keeps on going. But how counterintuitive is this? How utterly foreign to the way we naturally respond to situations. Ironically, it is through vulnerability and personal loss that evil is resisted and that we begin to flourish. The second example is harder yet because this is the context of a a legal situation. Someone is being sued and Jesus is putting us in the context of the person who is guilty, the person who is being sued. We are being sued for our shirt and Jesus says, give him your coat as well. Now, there's something really ironic about this that we need to think about the Old Testament just for a moment about because in the Old Testament, there was a law stipulating that you cannot take someone's coat, especially if they were poor, because in the ancient context, someone would use their coat, their outer garment, as a blanket at night, and if they didn't have that, they would freeze to death. So notice what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, even when you have a legal right to keep your coat, they sue for your shirt, you you give them what you have a legal right to okay, I don't like that. (laughs) That's really challenging. That we are being asked to not just submit ourselves to a court of law, we're in the wrong, we get sued, I have to pay some punitive damages, but then I pay more? And I pay the more that I have a legal right to? What kind of action is that? That is an upside-down, inside-out way of living as the world sees it. But Jesus, once again, is saying, this is the way to flourishing. 
In fact, Jesus here is saying, you, would, you should rather go naked than fight. That's hard. I have to admit, as I hear the words of Jesus here, and that's the way of flourishing, that's a hard road to understand. How does that lead to my flourishing? The third example is challenging as well. Here the example is a typical situation when an occupying army right, is, uh, is uh, occupying a nation. And here Israel was occupied by the Romans. It was a very common experience where a Roman centurion would come up to a Jewish person and say, carry my pack for a mile. And the, the Jewish person would have no recourse. They would have to do it. But Jesus is saying here, not only give what custom demands, but give more as well. Go two miles, not just one. Keep walking. Keep walking, even when the Roman hand, you know, extends his hand and asks for his pack back. Keep going. This is the way to flourishing. The final example, Jesus says, give to everyone who asks you. These illustrations, turning the cheek, giving the shirt and the coat, going the extra mile, and giving to the one who asks, they are merely illustrations. They're illustrations, and and I need to say a word of caution. We can't apply them too literally. The command to turn the cheek does not apply to the situation of rescuing a child from abuse. You're supposed to turn your cheek, not someone else's. And also, the the principle of giving to the one who asks um, doesn't mean that when someone approaches me in the grocery store parking lot that when they ask for five bucks, I hand them the keys to my car. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus is giving striking illustrations that that, uh, challenge us to think about how we would live our lives in a wholly different way. They're not to be applied with strict rigidness. They're, They're to be applied with great wisdom. In my life, what does it look like to be someone who has given up on retaliation? The idea here that Jesus is driving at, all these situations revolve around renouncing retaliation, embracing being a peacemaker, and all of them are based on the idea of leaving justice in God's hands. Flourishing here is to realize that Justice doesn't depend on what I do. This calls us back to the strange counterintuitive realities that we saw in the Beatitudes. The place of flourishing, ironically and unexpectedly, is the place of poverty of spirit, of mourning, of meekness, of hunger and thirst, of mercifulness, of having a pure heart, of peacemaking, and suffering for righteousness' sake. This is the new reality where God himself is the judge. He is setting the world to rights. Um, And if I can speak especially to the Christians here this morning, we are the people who have been called to live out this Sermon on the Mount new reality, to live in this new kind of upside-down, inside-out kind of way. But the foundation, the reason we can live this new way is because God himself is making all things new. He is the judge. He is restoring justice. So we can relinquish retribution. The way to flourishing in God's kingdom is actually to be wronged by another. 
Often, the just thing to do is to not seek one's own justice. Paul sums it up tersely in 1 Corinthians 6-7 when he says, Why not be wronged? This was brought home very poignantly even this week, this idea of why not be wronged. Um, Just a couple of days ago, 29 Coptic Christians on pilgrimage in the Egyptian desert were, were killed, murdered by a group of ISIS fighters. In a subsequent interview, one of the relatives, another Christian, one of the relatives of the people who had been killed was asked, what's your response to this? And this person's immediate response was, I forgive. I forgive those who have killed my loved ones. I forgive them, and I gladly forgive them, and I gladly forgive uh, my own blood for the sake of Jesus Christ. I forgive. We should be praying for our brothers and sisters who are experiencing this on the other side of the world. But what a poignant example of not reaching for justice, for retribution, for an eye for an eye, but walking the way of Christ. How do we do this? We can't do this on our own. This is the last point then, number four, living with justice in God's hands. How do we live this inside-out, upside-down kind of life that the Sermon on Mount is asking us to live? How do we relinquish retribution? First of all, here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, where we've been reading, Matthew has given us two little verbal hints that, if, uh, if we could read, especially in the original language, connects this passage to Jesus' crucifixion at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 39 in our passage, just as we are to endure a slap on the face, so too Jesus, as he went before the Jewish court in Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, Jesus himself endured beating, spitting, and a slap on the face. Likewise, as we are to give our coat when we are being sued for our shirt, there in Matthew 5.40, in Matthew 27, verse 35, Matthew records, after crucifying him, they divided up his coat and cast lots for it. Here are two little verbal cues that Matthew is giving us to see that the very kind of renunciation of retaliation that we are being called to as Christ's followers, Christ himself experienced. Jesus is the one who suffers a slap of dishonor and the humiliation of losing his possessions. But even here, when Jesus experiences these things, he embodies the life of non-retaliation. Let me read for you a passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 uh, and following. This is an example um, of, of how Christ himself relinquishes retaliation. Peter says this in chapter 2, verse 21. He says, For you were called to this because Christ also suffered. He suffered for you, leaving you this example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the judge who judges justly. Here, Peter is saying, Jesus is the innocent one. Um, With the words of Isaiah, Peter 
underlines the fact that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, that he was perfectly innocent. But though he was innocent, he was being abused. He was being slandered. And the verbal tense here in the original language is emphasizing the fact that when Jesus was abused, he did not fight back, not just once, but again and again and again. When he was slandered, he did not defend himself again and again and again. And instead of fighting back, what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to God's judgment. He entrusted himself to God's justice. I'm thinking of, to myself when I'm reading this passage again and again, if, if someone was slandering me, if someone was attacking me, I would fight back. What is it? What is it in Jesus? What is it in the follower of Christ that enables us to not fight back, to turn the other cheek, to give up on getting even? Well, it's the next verse in 1 Peter, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. The way to flourishing is to live with justice in God's hands to give up on getting even. And it's as we look to Christ, the one who entrusted himself to the Father, the one who has died in our place, the one who is renewing us, transforming us by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is the only way we can walk this path. This is the only way we can turn the cheek. It's not my power, but it's the transforming power of Christ. And we're called to this new kind of flourishing, not just for ourselves, but so that this message of Jesus Christ can be on display to our neighborhoods, to our world around us. The world would take note of a group of people who, when wronged, do not wrong back, who, when slandered, do not slander back, but instead return love and mercy, not getting even. This is the way that the Lord calls us to respond. And so... As we're thinking about this this morning, I pray, so I'll close here in prayer, that, that it would be the power of Christ that leads us to this new way of living, uh, but that we would see that Jesus, beautiful, loving, has cared for us and transformed us so that we might have this new life of flourishing. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, pray that during this, these moments where we've thought about Matthew chapter 5, I pray, Father, that, that your spirit would be speaking to us, that we would see a beautiful Jesus Lord God, that you have loved us. You have gone before us. You have made a way for us by entrusting yourself, Lord Jesus, to the Father. And in doing this, you have provided a way that we might be changed. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us work this out in our own lives. Help us to see how in small ways you're transforming us. Um, and Lord, as we are challenged to walk this new path of flourishing. Um, help us, Lord, to not be quick to speak or quick to anger, but let us be slow. Let us be um, willing to relinquish our rights to retaliation. Lord, do this in us for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of our own flourishing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.